So, good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're settling in. It's the first day. As Mark mentioned this morning, it can have a lot of ups and downs on the first day. It's a bit like being at a detox center. <laughs> it's like no coffee, no phone. Ugh, what are we doing here, right? It's like, it feels like every... Every bell is like, another sit? No, didn't we just do that? <laughs> yeah, so there's a part of us that longs to be here and also longs to escape. You notice that? It's like, ah, oh, this sounded really great, but, you know, maybe I should, you know, think about going somewhere else now. <laughs> you know, it passes. Waves of wanting to be here, wanting to leave, the push and the pull. I really understand that, actually, having practiced a lot on long retreats, short retreats, long retreats. Every retreat has its own power and its own teaching. And um, what we're trying to do is just support you in staying here. <laughs> Spirit Rock, to me, is like a hospital. It's a giant hospital, Spirit Hospital. Spirit Rock, hence the name. If we called it Spirit Hospital, people might be like, oh, that's really weird. <laughs> We call it Spirit Rock. You come, you sit, you have really good food, you walk in nature, you move your body, you get rid of all your technology, and then guess what happens? You start to feel better. But sometimes you can feel worse before you feel better, though. That's the downside. That's what we don't mention uh, initially. <laughs> it's like Ajahn Chah, the Thai Forest Master, used to say, there's a suffering that leads to more suffering. And there's the suffering that you have to experience that leads to the end of suffering. Right? And sometimes coming here, we have to feel the aches and pains in our bodies. Right? Has, how many of you have felt a lot of pain that you weren't expecting to feel? Like, what's going on? It looks really easy. You come slowly in the hall. You leave slowly out of the hall. Like, why is this so painful? And I'm going to kind of talk about that a little bit tonight, or this afternoon actually, in a talk that I'm calling uh, Trusting Our Hearts, Embodiment, Intuition, and Personal Power. But more focused on the embodiment piece, because there is something very profound that happens here to not only your mind, your body, everything, it starts to uh, come into harmony. And that often comes with tension because we're letting go of that which we carry. I mean, even when I was sitting here just now, I had the, after I rang the bell, the sense of, oh, I really need to do yoga. <laughs> right? I could just feel like the solidity of my body, right? And the need to let go of something like, oh, yeah, I need to really move. And, um, and also we feel that in our lives, like something isn't quite right. I mean, most people, to tell you the truth, come to Spirit Rock or any spiritual practice when things are going wrong. If your life was blissed out right now, you wouldn't come on a silent retreat, right? You'd just be, <clears throat> you'd be there doing that. Oftentimes it's the call to something, um, the restlessness and what, what else is there, right? Is this it? Is this what I do? Is this who I am? Is this the day-to-day? -day? Is this the reality? Right? We, start, we start looking for something more, something deeper. Often I used to come to retreats, um, especially when I was in my 20s, I would go on long retreats, but I would, I would almost feel like I was in an ambulance coming to the retreat. Like I looked okay on the outside, but I was not okay on the inside. Right? It was like everything was a mess. Is anyone coming to retreat kind of like that? Dirty dishes, bad breakup fight before you got here, work, uncertain. Things seem uncertain and we kind of escape. Like, uh, okay, I gotta, I'll go over here, I'll make sense of it, I'll fix this stuff later. We sometimes come on retreats like that. And there's a fragility in that. You know, we arrive here not really that okay, right? And we, there's something here that we don't have to pretend to be okay all the time, right? That's our usual answer when people say, how are you? Fine, busy, but fine, right? We don't let people know what's really happening, you know? It's like, so here we kind of let the veil down a bit. We become more real. I love that, 
You know, when I talk to people, I, I get tired sometimes of the mask and I like, long for a realness. How are you really? Why did you really come here? I once did this exercise with John Kabat-Zinn. It was at the start of this little retreat. Uh, he's the mindfulness teacher and all this. And he, you know, he's written so many great books, you know, on mindfulness and uh, wherever you go, there you are and all this stuff. And he, he had us do this exercise at the opening retreat. And he says, okay, now tell everyone why you're here. So everyone was like, well, I want to study mindfulness. I might be a mindfulness teacher. You know, they had all these answers. And then he goes, that was great. Now answer it again five minutes, and then we would answer it, and then he goes, yeah, let's answer it again. Why are you really here? And it was like, that third round was like, okay. <laughs> it was like, okay, stock answers done. Why am I really here? You know, and so this is a really beautiful time to check in with yourself. It's like a reset button. This is the pause button, right, where we kind of look deeper. What am I doing? How am I living? What are my values? Am I happy? Is this onward leading? Like we need to have these pauses in our lives. If we don't, we get caught up in the snowball of politics and capitalism and, and busyness and doing and social media. And we just lose ourselves in that. A lot of people come and I talk to people on retreats here and in my life. Uh, outside of Spirit Rock, and everyone said, I just feel this lost feeling, not connected. I feel like I'm here to do something, but I don't know what. Right? It's like I feel underwater. I was talking to a client of mine who comes to see me uh, to do healing work, and she would say, I'm underwater. I'm in the weeds. Does this sound familiar? Right? It's like, ah, oh, we're just looking for this clarity. So I think... Um, all this is important. Our suffering is actually the doorway. You know, the Siddhartha Gautama, he didn't stay at his palace and never go anywhere because it was great. He felt the suffering, <laughs> like this boredom. You know that feeling like, oh, bored, restless. I have everything. It's all great, but it's not great. Right? It's like, what's something has to be beyond this. And so the suffering actually becomes the doorway for us. It becomes the moment of touching something real when we acknowledge things aren't working. Then we have possibilities, right? Then it's like, ah, well, what, what needs to shift? How can I open? What's happening here? So I think, although it can sound like we're painting a bad picture, it's actually the best picture because this is where we can open to something new. Right? This is where you arrive at a retreat center and you, there's an open mind. So that's a, that's a beautiful place to start um, and a common one. I have a very interesting uh, life here. I'm one of the teachers here on the Teachers Council and I also um, live in the jungle for about half the year. <laughs> and so that makes me interesting. I'm sort of a Buddhist shamanic teacher. So when I teach, I teach from the perspective of also being a healer, doing healing work, which is unique for a Vipassana teacher, right? So I see clients and I have this and do things as an energy healer. And my Dharma practice and the, my shamanic healing practice, they go, they serve each other because what we're trying to do is heal and wake up. It's the same thing. It's the same direction, you could say. And a lot of that work starts with the body, so I have a huge fascination in this mind-body phenomena. And good thing is, so did the Buddha, right? This, the whole of this map uh, that I want to talk about is founded in embodiment. And I know that we were, Mark and I and the team, we were looking over a lot of the sheets and we're like, wow, there's a lot of tech people here. <laughs> a lot of people in the tech programmers, Maybe you didn't, you didn't know you're sitting in a group of like programmers, a lot of you. Um, and also medical, and, and it was really interesting. It was just an interesting constellation. And so I, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be a really different kind of talk because I'm going to talk about the body and not the mind. You know, but they go together. They serve one another. People often forget that Siddhartha Gautama and many other great spiritual teachers they, you know, he sat on the earth naked for years practicing. 
It wasn't in necessarily in a lab, that's for sure. It was on, it was earthy, you know? There's something about us being in our body on the ground that wakes us up. And I want to talk about that tonight um, because the body is the first foundation of mindfulness. And there's traditionally four four foundations. And they come from a text called the Satipatthana Sutta. Now, Sati means mindfulness. And Patthana means kind of like to set forth, to establish upon, something kind of like that. So here we are, we're setting forth ourselves into mindfulness. You could say this morning, Mark kind of launched us out, right? Like, here we are, we're going to establish this mindfulness together. And, um, and another word for mindfulness is remembering. I love that. I always, when I teach people, I say, I, I don't have anything new to say. What I'm going to help you to do is to remember for yourself. It's like we've just forgotten all this stuff, but when you come to Spirit Rock, part of the hospital healing is remembering. You know, I'm a teacher who doesn't like often to say too much. I always say, what do you know? What does your heart say? Remember for yourself, because that remembering is really powerful. It's in your bones, the Dharma. Right? We, but we're in a state of sleepiness. You know, how many of you felt really tired today? <laughs> Raise your hand. Like, ah, oh, especially after lunch, right? <laughs> how many of you took a nap one time today? Yeah, good, look around, right? Because some people could feel like they're cheating the program or something. Well, one of the things is that you arrive in an exhausted state most of the time. We're up all night the night before going, what should I wear? What am I doing? Oh, the dishes. Who's got my cat? You know, we're, we do a double at work, right? We're up on the, right, okay, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Wait, let me do one more thing, you know. So we arrive kind of frenetic, and then as soon as you get here, it's so quiet. And we're talking softly in the hall, and it's kind of a little hot in here, actually, right? And so it's just, good night. The mind's like, I'm a, a, this is great, best sleep I've ever gotten, Right? Good, it's part of it to sleep here, to rest, to rest your body. Because we go at a pace. I even feel that if I admit to you something, I have a thing for, I'm writing, uh, working on a book project and a blog, so I write a lot. So I have this thing with writing and coffee. <laughs> it's like my ritual with latte, coffee. And so I notice the effect of saying like, I don't want any of that, you know, no, no. It's like, oh, my body, I'm feeling that. So, um, remembering and relearning, relearning how to be in our bodies. So there's this great uh, story I want to tell you about, um, the Rohitasana Sutta. I know I butchered up his name a little bit. Rotasana. Rotasana. I love this story. It's in the suttas. And the the suttas are a collection of the teachings that were collected around the Buddha stories, teaching stories. Um, They're kind of like the Buddhist Bibles, and we teach out of them a lot, but they're full of magic and mystery and wonder and other dimensions um, and real practice. So this is a particular story where um, they say that the Buddha never slept, that he uh, stayed up basically till 11 teaching uh, the monastics who were there, he traveled in large groups of numbers, they say. All of these suttas start with the word, the words, thus I have heard, thus I have once heard. And it goes on to tell the story. So this is one that starts, thus as we once heard. So at night, when everybody else would go to bed, they say that the Buddha taught devas and celestial beings from the hours of 11 p.m. to 3 a.m., so when everyone else would go to bed, they would say all these devas and would come and he would teach the same teachings, mindfulness, compassion, wisdom, whatever was needed, he would stay up and teach. So this sutra starts with the Buddha was sitting in Jetta Grove. And Jetta Grove is a place that was donated and to the monastics and they were, they were there. And, and they said the whole forest lit up with light. And devas are these angels, um, angel-like beings. Here it is particular deva came and asked to 
asked him if he could ask a question. I have a question about my practice, right? And um, his question was, is it possible by traveling to know or see or reach the end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, or pass away? So basically he was saying, is there a place I can get to by traveling that I can reach the end of suffering? Now here's what's interesting about this particular deva. He was called a skywalker. And he, (laughs) I know, skywalker a little bit. He could travel across the universe at light speed, moving. And he had spent the last, I think it was a hundred years, looking for the end of suffering by traveling. Only stopping to eat very small, use the restroom, and then he kept going, looking for the end of the universe. When, where does this end? There's got to be an ending. Get me off this, right? And travel, 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 travel. Go, 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 go. So when he finally says, I haven't reached the end, he goes, I'll go talk to the Buddha. So there he appears with this question. Is it possible to reach the end in this way? And so the, Mark kind of mentioned a little bit of this teaching this morning. So the, so the Buddha looks at Rotasana and says, no, it is not possible to get to the end of suffering by traveling the cosmos. And obviously you imagine after 100 years of this, he's a little disappointed, like, really? There's no end? He said, no, you reach the end of the suffering by examining your body. And they call it this fathom-long body, right? This... Uh, so that's a, that's a really big point. He turns it inward. Like you reach the end of suffering here, within. It cannot be found anywhere else. And so that, was a, that teaching has stood out to me a lot, along with the first foundation of mindfulness. So how do we do this? And let's talk a little bit about the dilemma of being born in the West and the, some of our collective karma of disembodiment. We don't know how to live in our bodies and there are certain challenges that make it hard for us to practice meditation and be embodied. We have a unique set of challenges that together we have to kind of overcome. Um, in, my, in my book I wrote a chapter um, uh, about the body calling it our tree of life, your tree of life and how the, the incredible wonders that are in the body, and this is also just as a healer, is that the body is a storehouse of all wisdom, all DNA. Everything we've ever learned, we are part of the the cosmos, is in the body. And I started to understand the first foundation more from an energetic place. Like, oh, as we sit on the earth, everything that's in the body helps us to remember. We connect to the body instead of being lost in the mind. How many of you felt like you were really lost in your mind today, just these few hours? Yeah, isn't it? It's kind of painful, right? It's kind of painful, but we kind of like it because we're addicted to it. You know, we're addicted to the you know, reality TV mind games that are, you know, it's like constant. Like, And did you notice in your mind that a lot of it is fighting, arguing? They said this, I said this. How could they say that? that A lot of you know, if you start to get calm, you start to say, why am I, who am I fighting with right now? The neighbors, someone from the past, someone sitting around you, maybe Spirit Rock, you know, something that happened on the drive over, like a car, somebody in the car, at the grocery store, you know, your partners, kids, like we're always fighting. No wonder there's this stress in the body, right? But when we start to move aside from that kind of telenovela, those mind stories, we start to drop into something that's really wise, really awake, and really beautiful. And this is what the Buddha was pointing to with his teaching. So somebody once sent me this beautiful image um, of a star. huge star and they said oh spring I found this really old picture of you right and I was like wow it was like one of those close-ups with a hubble like wow look at this star and then I wrote back no it's a picture of all of us (laughs) like that also is science right that is true our bodies are elements that's why the being with the earth reminds us of a deeper truth 
right? Water, air, we're mostly made up of water, right? If we were to look at our body of someone, a quantum physicist, maybe some of you in here are, right, was to look like this, what would they find, right? What are they looking at? They would just see moving particles. This form appears and then at an unknown time disappears, right? Isn't that, that's fascinating. Like we appear in this form that we can experience this reality and at an unknown time, it goes all the way back to the earth itself. I have this beautiful friend who um, visited me. She was in her 80s and she used to be a, an incredible, uh, like an African, beautiful African dancer. She's an incredible woman. And we were, she came over to my house with a group of women and I and she was talking about aging. And um, in 84... She's going to be 84, 85. Um, and she was like, yeah, letting go. And then she was like, do you want to see something? And she took her shirt off. <laughs> we were like, wow, okay. What, is she going to get naked here? You know, what's going on? She's like, I want you to see something. And her back was kind of bent over. And there was like, there was this things growing kind of. And she said, look at my back. It's bent. You know, when we look, she's like, look closely, don't look away, look really closely. So we're like, okay, this is, because this woman, you, and she tells you something, you do it, right? I'm going to look, looking. She's like, I'm turning back into a tree. I look like the tree outside, right? And she's like, not long, I'll be back into the earth, gone. This is a, a really deep truth that we don't see when we're not in our body, we're not connected to the elemental nature that we are. We miss, not just the impermanence, but we miss the magic. It was like what Mark was saying, and I spend a lot of time with the rivers and in jungles and in trees, and I love it. I love the sound of cicadas, loud. I love to be where it's this canopy, I can barely see the sky. I love traveling in the Amazon rainforest because I feel like I'm in the heart of, like, wow, this is creation. <laughs> it's just creation on creation, just growing, 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 growing. Everything is this, this aliveness. Um, everything is moving. What I think is a rock is a frog. What I think, you know, everything's upside down and alive. And that reminds me of me in so many ways. Like, we are, we have this aliveness that we are bringing back. Because when we just live in the mind, we, we become dead to that. And this practice, what it can do is reconnect you to much deeper teachings, much deeper wisdom. And we need this wisdom now. Oh my goodness, do we ever need this wisdom now more than ever? So oftentimes when I work with people, I'm known to teach a lot of meta retreats and uh, compassion retreats. I mean, I wrote a book called The Fierce a fierce heart. So I collect stories about the heart. I write about healing, opening the heart, and why is that so painful for people to love each other, right? And love ourselves. Well, one of the things, if you don't live in your body, you're probably not connected to your heart as much. When you think of someone and you say, wow, they live in their head, <laughs> that's not really a heart-centered person, right, in your mind. You wouldn't think, oh, okay. But when someone is really in their heart, it's like a different, it's a different energy. We're sensitive when we're more in our body. We're tapping into the wisdom of the heart. Um, I've talked a lot about the organization down uh, in San Jose called HeartMath. Are you familiar with them? They were founded by a bunch of doctors, cardiologists, neurosurgeons, all kinds of people who study the heart. Right? And they started to realize that the heart had, its, had a brain. And they're like, wow, the heart has its own brain. It knows things way before our mind can. And I've known this, because my mind, I would say, is kind of like a child, but my heart has deep roots. Right? Like the mind, it complains, that, 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 you know. If I put this aside and I live from here, I can handle way more. I can open way more. My capacity multiplies 500% if I'm holding things with my body, right? If I'm allowing energy to move through the body. So um, they discovered the, the brain. And then I have another friend who's uh, Christiana. Some of you might know her. She's a, a doctor. She lives in Los Angeles. Um, she's been involved with them studying how the gut has a brain. 
right? So there's all this, you know, your gut instincts, you know, this place right here where your, your gut knows. And when we go against things that our gut knows, oh, it's painful, isn't it? It's like, I knew that. Oh, why did I walk down that street or do that thing or go to, you know, give that, do, act in some way? So your body is trying to give you signals all the time, but we're missing them. I have learned that my body is tremendously compassionate. It's always trying to work with me. You know, in Hakomi, they say cells move toward healing all the time. It's always trying to recalibrate. It's always saying, hey, I'm here, right? It's getting out of balance. I'm warning you now. You need to sleep, <laughs> right? You need to slow down. You can't keep living like that. Your body is the first one to throw up the flag, like, hello, this is not sustainable. I can't do it anymore. It's usually your body that says, I can't, you can't put me through this anymore. And it just sometimes just, doesn't even get out of bed anymore, right? Just lays flat. So your body, there's this wisdom that we can tap into. It is our tree of life, and we are just discovering how amazing the potential is it's tremendous. And I, w- I want to just say a few things more about how, how uh, incredible I've been discovering this body is my own body, other people's bodies. So if we've discovered that the brain, um, you know, there are a lot of brain discoveries, neuroscience, very good. But if the heart has its own brain and the gut has its own brain, the body is, has a certain wisdom to it too, right? And how do you listen to the call of your heart? Isn't that what you want to know here? Like... Who am I? What, what, what am I doing? Where is my path forward? How do I love people more? How do I love myself more? I mean, aren't you here because you want to love more something, open to something? I mean, this is the great hope of the spiritual path, I think, is how do I open my heart? How do I live with this freedom? And so that's been my exploration a, a lot. But I do know that it starts with being in your body. Because that's where the heart lives, deep, deep in this chakra here, right? And it's waiting for us to make contact, to start to listen to it. I've been really lucky over the years that my main mentor, almost 20 years, has been Jack Cornfield because he, I think I was, we were destined, I was, you know, for him to be my mentor early on because this is his path to, like, understanding the heart. And I always ask him, why are we so, why is there so much suffering? People don't know how to love. And at the end of their life, that's the only thing that's going to matter. Right? How do I love people? How do I love this planet? Right? How do I love my kids or the, the people in my life? It starts with kind of living in this deeper way, living more embodied. And we train in this while we're here. Following your breath, this isn't just a breath exercise. It's a way of re... of learning to inhabit another place. Instead of lost in the mind, like chaos here, we're, we're like, okay, come back to your breath and then feel your feet, <laughs> right? So the mind wanders off and what do we say? Come back right away, come back, come back, right? We get lost in the stories and we say, come back to feeling the earth. And you're sitting on your cushion, the mind goes off on stories, come back to your breath. So we're trying to create a more... Um, an environment that's conducive to presence instead of insanity. I mean, our minds are crazy. Chogyam Trumpa used to always say that, the Tibetan teacher. First insight, you're totally crazy. Let's start from there. Then we have something to work with. Have you seen a little of that now? I mean, can you say yes to that? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, what we think about all the time and, you know. And that's okay, we learn that. There's no judgment in that. You know, this is also... Uh, societal. (laughs) It's uh, what we've learned. So, um, learning to be here in the present moment to feel. There's something magical between the thoughts. When one thought ends, one story ends, right before another one picks up, there's a moment called now. 
You might have felt it today for a split second, right? Okay, now, right? Where, what, where, where is now? I used to always think, what, what is the present moment? Where is the present moment? It's right before, it's between the stories, it's the gap. It's when we turn the TV off for a split second. There's this magical moment called here. And you just can experience that moment one or two minutes a day and it has an incredibly restorative effect on your whole mind. Even one minute is like a medicine, like present moment sort of, as we're sitting here, it wakes something up. I don't really know how meditation works, but it does. It's the mystery that everyone's studying. How does this work again? How did you just sit there in the present moment and the insanity begins to clear itself up, right? That naturally we come back into harmony. We find this balance that we're looking for. But it does take practice. It does take time. And there's reasons that we are uh, disembodied. So I want to talk a little bit about that. When I teach retreats, and I was kind of, um, I started to talk about this a little, I want to come back to it. When I teach meta retreats, often people will tell me, and this is when we're doing meta practice um, from the beginning of the day, we'll say phrases all day long, visualizations, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe. You know, we're working intentionally on basically being loving and friendly. These retreats are an all-out battle. Loving ourselves, I'm going to tell you, is the hardest thing we can do. Because it's like we confront the ego, the confused part of the mind, right? That's there. And people will talk about this profound numbness they have. They'll say, Spring, I don't feel it. I'm doing it. I don't feel it. Has anyone noticed that? There's almost like, it's almost like we're anesthetized. I don't feel it. I can't feel my feet. I can't feel And I had this for a lot of years. And I didn't even realize it. When I was practicing in the early days, I would be doing walking meditation. And I, I was never really there. But I looked so good on the outside. You would have been like, wow, she is the most mindful person. But I, I was never there. I didn't know I wasn't. You know, I would just be standing, sitting, walking, walking, walking. Because I really couldn't inhabit my body at all. I was just totally numb. Now that numbness can come a lot from trauma. The habit for us to disassociate is very strong. We don't actually want to be in our bodies because to be in your body means to feel. This is where all the stuff is. This is where the sorrow is. This is where the fear is. This is where the glory is. This is where the good stuff is too. So when you put a wall up and you're numb, guess what you're also keeping out? Love, compassion, wisdom, awe, wonder. You know, you, you, you can't have one without the other. You shut down, you shut down it all. Um, so we start often with this understanding that what we're doing here is unfreezing. Right? And that takes a gentleness. It's like we're waking up when I'm sometimes in Peru and I'm doing healing work with people um, and I found these frozen parts in myself, right? And we'll, we'll, be, we'll be working with shamans and healers and, and somebody will say, I can't, feel, like I'm frozen this whole part. And you know what we'll do? We'll start massaging them. Like come back. You're disassociated. Like we come back, we pull all these parts of ourselves back together. And we disassociate from trauma. We disassociate because the earth, we feel the overwhelm of what do I do, right? Living in our culture. You know, many people are very sensitive. They don't recognize that sensitivity as a gift, so they shut it down, right? To be a man means not to be sensitive. So a lot of people with masculine energy or male, they shut it down, right? That's not okay. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. That's not the program. Right, So to protect ourselves, we shut down, shut down. And so we've shut down so many parts of ourselves, we're like, we're lost in the, we're lost to ourselves. So meditation is kind of, this practice kind of restores something. And that restoration is power, right? We get our power back. We get our intuitive feeling back. We, we get to be back in ourselves. This is very important for everybody to restore their own personal power, to come home, to come here, to be here, to live in this body. Because that's how you have real power. 
right? That's where you can feel things. People that don't live in their body, they don't feel when they're walking on the ground. They don't notice crushing others as they walk through life. They're oblivious to it. They don't feel it. So this is a really, really um, important thing and a timely thing as we come back into our body, to come back into feeling. Because we, we start to notice our impact. And we start to notice our beauty too, our love, our capacity. It's all there. So... Um, one of the ways, I want to teach a little bit, and in the evenings we'll be doing um, different exercises on uh, the heart and compassion and love. I really want to, even if you feel really tired to come to the 8 o'clock, you know, it's very sweet. These heart practices are everything now. This is how you thaw it out. You know, we, we wake up not by brute force. You wake up by huge heart compassion. (laughs) And that's what I learned a lot from my Tibetan teachers. As a young person, I'd be like, why are they always obsessed on compassion? You know, I would think this. Of course, I'd be sitting there like, okay, another compassion talk, okay. And now I get it. That you actually need the heart in order to wake up. The mind and the heart have to be balanced. It's not that we let go of the the mind door. They just, it has to be balanced and we don't have that balance right now. Does that make sense? Right? It's like the prophecy of the eagle and the condor. So in the, in the South Americas, which is funny because I spent so much time in like traveling in the South. They also consider themselves Americans, by the way. They're just South Americans. <laughs> right? And then North American, we have the icon of the eagle in our culture, don't we? What is it? The eagle is like brute strength. It's often on military stuff, right? They sort of took it from the Native American, <laughs> actually, and they, as their power symbol, and they go, oh, we'll use it to kind of mean dominance. Like, when you see eagle stuff, it's usually on, like, weapons, war. Um, and there's a Mayan prophecy, in a, a prophecy within, the, actually, the Amazonian tradition. They said, for 500 years, the eagle will dominate the condor. And the condor represents this the beautiful, well, I wouldn't say it was beautiful bird, actually, but it's a magical bird. Um, it represents the south, which is like Panchamama, growing, uh, farming, community, uh, that they said the eagle would sort of beat up the condor for 500-year cycle, right? And so when that 500-year cycle ended in uh, 2012, then they said the condor would rise, the con- this condor energy, which is like the heart, uh, the land, the people, sort of rising with the green movement, right? Isn't the green movement like a, it's a collective movement? Like, let's just grow things together. How about that? <laughs> like, it's, not in, it's like a shift in... It's a shift, right, this, this energy. But it's not that the condor then beats up the eagle. Now, what sense does that make, right? As they fly together, right? And this I represent sort of the mind and the body coming together. They have to be balanced, right? We have to live from here and trust also our heart wisdom. I feel like my heart has a GPS system. It knows where to go if I listen to it. <laughs> Right? It knows, it knows, it's wiser than my, my mind. It has much deeper roots because it's tapped into these ancient roots. So we can learn to trust our intuitive wisdom. We don't have to be cut off from that. We can learn, we can become aware by practicing moment to moment here. And through that, um, we can just start to discover a power that is grounded and authentic. So I want to tell one last story. I, couldn't, I can't remember when I started. Oh, okay, yeah, we have a little bit more time. I want to tell one story that I like a lot. Um, I told it in my book. Because it had a big effect on me. It was years ago. And it's a story... Um, story within a story, actually. I was on a long retreat for about, I was at an eight-month retreat at a center in Massachusetts called the Forest Refuge. 
And um, I had sat many months in silence. I was going through a long cycle. It was before, actually, I was in the teacher training. And I had sat through all these uh, Burmese side owls, these fierce kind of teachers. They were um, monastic, right? And so I was like, okay, this is good practice, right? And I'll just get hardcore. And I can do that because I have a lot of concentration. So it's kind of natural. But it felt really out of balance after five months. Right, and so they left, and I said I had a crisis. <laughs> I was like, "What am I doing?" You know, I was even, yeah, it was so hardcore. They'd be like, "Mindfulness, sit, walk, sit," you know. <laughs> and I mean, this this one teacher, Upandita, he was like so cruel. And I, I was, and I was like, "Okay, you know, if you weren't mindful when you walked in the door to, for your interview, he'd ring the bell and go get out. You didn't, you didn't even pay attention." <laughs> You know, it was, just, it was just a way of practice. It reminds me of the Soto Zen tradition. I had a Japanese friend also would tell me when her ancestors, when they would do retreats, they would set the retreat and they say, anyone who leaves, we kill you. <laughs> That's a way we're finding, again... Isn't that the ego kind of beating up on the con? I mean, that's the energy. Like, okay, even in spiritual traditions, like, let's find the middle way here, everybody. You know, it's like, so now we're dying over. We're on retreat. Uh, Spirit Rock is very much the gentle middle way, I think, right? You have yoga, and then there's the, you know, it's, it's, we're not a boot camp here. But so I was having a real crisis of faith. And um, I remember, I went to the library, and there was only 25 people at this retreat center uh, at a time, and it was remote in the woods, and there was, I had no anything to distract myself from myself. And I went into the library, and there was only hardcore Buddhist books in there, like the Pali Canon, verse 1 through 100, right? Nature of Mind, volume 7 to 18, right? It was like... There was no comic book. There was nothing, right? It was just me and my mind. And so I already looked in there 500 times, right? But anyway, I wandered in there, and I see this little book someone slipped between these two giant ones. And I was like, I've never seen that before. I know, right? So I was like, what is this? So, And I was so upset the days before. I was thinking, I'm going to give up on the Dharma. This isn't for me. I don't know if I'm getting anywhere. I had a huge crisis, which can happen at times, right? Just, just, I, I couldn't understand why I was doing this to myself. Like, it was really painful. And like, what? Like, who does this? I should just be like my friends, you know? Maybe I'm, yeah, I don't know. I just started having all this doubt, 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 attack of doubt. And so anyway, I take this little book out, and it was so weird. It was obviously self-published, and all it had on it was this giant camel, and it said, the camel knows the way. I was like, what is this? Like, who would have put this here? I just looked over here yesterday, like, the camel. Anyway, I immediately ran back to my room with it. I was, like, going to read anything at that point. And I started to open this book, and it becomes completely magical. And it was a book, a real true story, about a practitioner who actually run into people who knew her quite well. She was a woman who was, um, had inherited a huge amount of wealth. She became a philanthropist. She was from London, an older woman. And she had this incredible Buddhist practice where she would do retreats all over the world with all these great masters. But she was also, not even but, but and she was also a devout Catholic. And so she would spend the other half of the year um, with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And she was good friends with Mother Teresa. They wrote letters to each other. They would have tea together because she was a big supporter and she was really devout and she would help with many of the missionaries and, and go and work there and things like that. So, so it was interesting to see her two sides of herself. And many of us have that. We have two traditions. I myself feel like I have that too. Um, so the story was about her struggle with the suffering of both paths, and especially the suffering in Calcutta, right? As she would go and just be like the Sisters of Mercy, which were the nuns that are renunciates, that just dedicate their life to serving, to helping. And so this particular book was all about that, so I found that very intriguing. But one chapter was kind of like a life-changing moment for me. It was a message that I needed to hear. 
And that's what's magical when we're like, we're listening, we ask the heart, give me a message, it will show up. So this chapter was about her deciding to reenact this desert trip where she goes on a camel across the desert, kind of like the desert masters. And, um, you know, in the time of Jesus, the desert, you know, so many things happen in the desert, as in all deserts, there's sort of a mystery to that space. And so she gets a, a driver, and a, it was a man and his son were helping her um, but they spoke a different language. But every night they would set out, it was like a three-week trip across the desert on the camel. And they would camp overnight and then go to the next stop and the next stop. So anyway, she's out there and reading at night and they're caravanning in the day on the camel. And um, the days go by. And then one morning they wake up and they always woke up at sunrise. They, the father and son loaded up her camel and then loaded up their camel. And then they smacked the butt of her camel and was like, go ahead, you know, go on. And they proceeded to turn around and go the opposite direction. So she was like, wait, what are you doing? And then they didn't know much English, but they knew this line. They said, oh, the camel knows the way. And then she was... And then they just left. <laughs> she was like alone. Out. And she was like, oh my God, I, I'm going to die. And so the next 15 hours was what she went through on this camel. Thinking, I'm dead, I'll have no water. Even though she had little provisions with her. How could they leave me? And she really saw no one. And she went from hysterical feelings to rage to tears. Hour after hour, she's just like out there thinking, this camel. And why she's crying and going through, the camel is slowly walking like this, that steadily forward. But she has no faith in any of it, right? But at some point, her mind snaps and she says, if I'm going to die, I'm not going to die like this. You know, I've been seeing all these teachers for years. She started to practice. Like, you know what, if this is it, I'm going to go with my heart open. And she starts thinking of Mary and the Buddha and all the great teachers, Ramana Maharshi, she'd met and the blessings that she had had and the goodness of her life. She starts to cry in gratitude and she's basically getting ready to say goodbye world, right? And she's like, I'm going to go with love and grace and humility. And, and so... Um, you know, she completely surrenders into that hour. And by then she's like, okay, the sun's going down. She's like, this is it. I'll probably just dehydrate and that'll be it. You know, she's prepared. And then sure enough, as it's going down, the sun's going down. She sees uh, the far, the twinkling of the lights of the camp. She's like, wait, what is that? And sure enough, the camel pulls in at the exact moment. And that day he knew exactly how to go across the desert. Um, and so she likened that to her heart. Like, my heart knows the way. And I told this story because I needed that to remember my heart at that time. I had lost touch with it, you know, in the other practices that I was doing. But just a funny note, I told this story uh, maybe a year ago. And then um, somebody came out of the smoking hut and then came and got me, left a note or something and said, somebody wrote the camel knows the way on the smoking hut. So you're going there. I just thought that was kind of funny, actually. (laughs) Um, But to close out here, I just, you know, it's the first night. Yeah, and I just, I wanted to just offer a way that you could practice that you could think about what it is that we're doing here and how important it is for us to shift, to shift from here to here. It's not about getting rid of one. It's not about beating up on one side of ourselves, the masculine, the feminine, the mind, the heart. It's about balancing. I think that's all we're looking for is this balance. And, and to take some time to, maybe over this retreat, to ask your heart, what do you need me to know? And to listen to the body. Like, what what do you want me to know? Your body is wise. It knows. It's caring. It's like what the Buddha Buddha said to Rohitasana. It's all here. This fathom-long body. Right? We're looking outside. But this jewel that we have, this opportunity, is to look inside during these days here. You know, we're always looking at our phone like that. (laughs) It's like, now... You can just look internal and see what you discover. And the last thing I'll say is see for yourself. 
Ehipatiko. I love that word. Ehipatiko. I love languages, so I love that word. It's a word that means see for yourself. I could tell you, Mark could tell you, everybody here could tell you, but it's more about you see for yourself if it's true. Right? So give yourself that time. You see for yourself. You make that discovery. Give yourself to the practice and just see what you begin to notice, but do it with heart. Do it with kindness. Right? Do it with a sense of nobility. Like, you know, like here we are, we're growing together. It's worthy of our respect. It really is. This, this is worthy of your respect, respecting yourself and your path and all you've been through in this human life. So I'll end there and we'll just sit for a moment quietly and then taking a breath. And may any goodness that has come from this talk, may it be all the goodness be shared and dedicated to the healing of all beings everywhere. Thank you, and enjoy your dinner. (laughs) Be there for that first bite. (laughs) Don't miss that one. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.